insurance companies are looking for yield and CLOs is a good place to find it. My name is Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. We're fortunate to be joined by Jean-Marc Bro, a securitized analyst in the fixed income division at T. Rowe Price. Jean-Marc, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. We're glad you're here. You have a deep securitized background, and I'm going to kind of do a quick intro here for our audience. You're a securitized credit analyst in the fixed income division. You're also a member of the Money Market Credit Policy Committee. You're a vice president of T. Rowe Price Associates and T. Rowe Price Group. Prior to that, you were with Agon as a research analyst running CLOs, CMBS, RMBS, and ABS. Is that kind of a fair, quick run through the garden? I think that's right. That covers most of it. All right. Good deal. So why should insurers be looking at CLOs as an asset class, the relative attractiveness of that asset class on a risk-adjusted basis, however you want to view it? Why do you think insurers should be having a good look at this? Sure. I mean, I think that's an obvious place to start. So the let me take a step back and just quickly, I uh, like sort of what a CLO is. And so for those of who don't know, CLO is a securitization that's backed by a pool of corporate loans. And so by corporate loans, we're really talking about high yield, formerly sort of the bank loan part of the world. These are loans that are generally originated as part of an LBO or an M&A transaction. But I think it's important to note that they are high yield and they are generally private equity sponsored. Something to point out on this is that these structures are actively managed. So rather than a lot of other parts of the securitized world, you have a static pool of assets here you have an, an actively managed pool of loans with a collateral manager who's usually well experienced in the management of corporate loans that is overseeing and actively trading and sourcing the collateral that goes into the deal. And I think that's important because it sort of gets to the entire reason for being for, for CLOs really, which is an asset management product. So specifically, it's an AUM vehicle for asset managers who are marketing primarily to equity investors who are searching for about a private equity or alternative asset like yield and using the CLO as financing. So you know, what's compelling about the asset class, I think you have to start with just relative valuations. So on a yield, but particularly on a spread basis, CLOs really up and down the capital stack look attractive versus their comps, whether you're looking at AAA CLOs in the call it the L plus 115 range versus IG corporates or maybe other parts of securitized. Or even if you're looking at parts of the, you know, the lower parts of the mezzanine structure with triple Bs, double Bs, and the, you know, call it anywhere from three to 600 DM versus high yield or just bind loans outright, those, that looks like a relatively attractive yield. So I think that's where you start. There's also the added benefit here that it's a floating rate product. So to the extent that you believe, and as we do, the, the Fed will begin a tightening cycle that tends to bode well for floating rate products such as this. So these are benchmarked off of three-month LIBOR currently. And I think finally, you know, this, this structure is showing itself to be structurally sound. So it's, it's lived through a number of downturns now. And I think one of the reasons it's gained so much new attention from investors, especially in the insurance side over the last you know, five to 10 years, is that it's, it's shown resiliency. That, that is really because the structure has worked the way it was intended to. I think specifically from the insurance standpoint, there's also an added benefit this year in that the NAC is changing their capital charges for AAAs. And so that probably makes the AAAs look more attractive relative to other parts of the investment grade world. Well, so I just saw a piece that was put up by the New York Fed in August, and it talked about the increase in allocations to CLOs by insurance companies. And it talked about their buying mezzanine tranches and effectively taking risk from transferring risk from banks to insurers. 
can you make some distinctions between what that is talking about and what we're going to talk about? I think that's right in that we have seen an increase in COA holdings on, on the insurance company balance sheet. And there has been a lot significant amount of growth in what we call mezzanine investments. So called single A through double B investments. I think I would argue that the risk transfer hasn't necessarily been from the banks as much as it's been as from parts of the other parts of the asset management world and potentially even parts of the hedge fund universe, which were historically a larger investor in the mezzanine part of the capital structure. You could make the case that, you know, the entire CLO universe is sort of replacing the banks as a financing mechanism for corporate activities. So for LBO activity, et cetera, but that's been underway for, for quite a while. Really, I think what's driven the larger investment from insurance companies down the stack is that fact that what I pointed out earlier, which is that the structure is really shown to be resilient. And so if you look back to sort of the 1.0 pre-GFC deals, so very, very few losses in even the most junior parts of the subordinate parts of the capital structure, triple B, double B, and no losses really to seniors at all. I mean, that's really the trend that's continued since with both sort of minimal impairments within the structure. And even though we did see downgrades, you know, within the last year because of COVID and some of the credit disruptions there, um, we've actually seen a, a pretty significant rebound in terms of the rating actions from the agencies with regards to even the, the mezzanine parts of that structure. So why, in your mind, does this asset class trade cheap to other securitized products? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Since we've given everything we just said in terms of the attractiveness of the asset class, why is it persistently cheap? And so I think, first, I think the old answer used to be that there's a there's a taint from being associated with CDOs. And there's probably some element of truth to that in that this was a clubbier market pre-GFC with, with less buyers. And it was sort of wrapped into the CDO universe. That's really not the case anymore. I think most, as mentioned, when most investors now have seen that the this is a very different product than the um, called the ABS or even the the mortgage related CDOs of the late 2000s, but I do think the fact that it's been a clubbier market, which has been somewhat slow to evolve, has just led to a little bit less liquidity and the and just less buyers in other parts of the securitized universe. So that's one of the reasons. I really think a large reason for it is that the SILA structure itself is really a, part of a feedback loop with the loan market. So if we think about what the collateral is in a CLO, right? These are loans that are often sourced in secondary that are readily available in the market for managers to buy. And so new CLO formation is easier than forming new securizations in other parts of the world. And so what happens is to the extent that you spread tighten too much, so AAA funding and the financing cost becomes too tight, the machine can just turn back on and supply can start to overwhelm again. So there's a natural feedback loop in terms of the how tight spreads can go versus new activity in the market, which just naturally leads to supply and technical widening. I also think that optionality plays a part in this. So there are a variety of options at the equities disposal in these structures, and they've shown to be basically pretty efficient at exercising them over time. And I think that naturally sort of weighs on the option-adjusted valuation. So sort of if they, optically, they may look a little bit cheaper versus some comps than if you were to look at it on an option adjusted basis, but still even on an OAS basis, we think these look cheap. And I think there's there's also the element that's a little bit different of an underwriting standard than what we use in other parts of the securitizing corporate world, right? So we're it's not a static pool. It's a it's a revolving pool of assets. And so that from day one makes it a little bit more difficult in terms of evaluating how the, the pool is going to perform over time. But 
more importantly means that you're you're really evaluating the collateral manager, the asset manager in this case. And so that's effectively an exercise in underwriting a collateral manager. So it's really getting to know the manager and understanding how the portfolios are managed and their specific strategies, as opposed to just understanding the specific collateral from day one in any deal. So I think all those elements combined to basically keep this market a little bit cheap relative to other parts of the world that we look at and likely will for at least the, the near term. And so you bring up a really good point. And I mean, you know, our, the people who listen to these podcasts know this, of course, but insurance companies are cash flow positive and they've got a tremendous amount of cash flowing off the portfolio every day and they can't sit in cash, right? So, you know, the availability of attractive assets is a big deal. This market supply has been high. You just talked about some reasons why. Is there anything else to add on why supply has been high and do you think that's going to continue? Good question. So we are definitely in an annual period of elevated supply. So we're going to set all sorts of records for the CLO market this year. And I think a large part of that is just reach for yield, like we're seeing everywhere, but specifically on the part of the equity. So CLO managers are marketing that equity piece to investors looking for you know 10% plus return. This is one of the few areas where they can get it. So to the extent that the, the arbitrage still makes sense, they can still source loans at a reasonable level versus the cost of CLO, they're going to continue to issue. And that's been the case. I think that's also helped by the fact that new equity investors, even existing equity investors, saw that the structures performed pretty well. Most managers performed pretty well during COVID, right? So most managers you know, kept the cash flow going to the equity. Some didn't, but the structure itself held up well. And more importantly, coming out of COVID, there's, there's a real opportunity for outsized returns for the equity. And so that sort of brought some supply that had been on the sidelines last year into this year. And I think what's also important is that the equity isn't all sort of true third party at this point. So managers are now marketing equity as part of a fund structure to a large pool of investors who are looking for private equity-like return, and then basically using that fund to basically provide the equity for incremental transactions. That's a lot easier of a mechanism for the manager to quickly and efficiently ramp a transaction than having to go source new equity with every with new incremental equity with every deal. So I think that's made the hurdle a little bit lower in terms of issuing transactions this year. And that'll continue to be the case down the line because there's still plenty of capital sitting in those funds. There's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue with loans versus CLOs, whether the sort of large demand coming from CLOs drove loan issuance this year or whether the you know CLOs are responding to loan production. But regardless, there you know, there was a lot of loan supply this year, a lot of pent-up M&A and LBO activity from last year that provided a lot of loans and did basically, which meant that a lot of loans needed to be placed in the market, which just meant more incremental room for CLOs to buy. So those are sort of the, the obvious ones. And then the final piece, which I think has really started to play an impact in the second half of this year is just the LIBOR transition at the end of the year. So these are floating rate instruments that are being paid off of three-month LIBOR, but the banks are being provided with guidance that they cannot issue anything that is LIBOR-related after year-end of 2021. So after the end of this year, we're looking to an alternate area, which is going to be SOFR in the case of, of CLOs, but deals are incented to just get done now this year before they have to deal with any market volatility related to that transition. So they were definitely front-running some of the deals which will be available next year, which I think goes to your, your second question, which is, is this pace sustainable? 
I really don't think it is. I think this year's space is is a bit of an outlier, and this that LIBOR issue is a big piece of it. I definitely expect we will slow into the early innings of next year, partially as we try to resolve how to think about SOFR and LIBOR and deal with some valuation issues. But more long term, I think we we probably look more like a 2018-2019 type issuance as sort of a more of a longer term trajectory. I, I mean, is it fair to say that if that prediction or whatever you want to call it, that outlook comes true, that you've got a pullback in supply early next year due to that LIBOR switch, seems like that may be a catalyst to bring spreads in a little bit right. and create some outsized returns. I mean, I obviously can't, you can't say, oh, this class is going to do this. But just from an economics perspective, it just makes sense to me that that could be the case. I think that's largely correct at a high level. So lower issuance next year probably means better support for spreads. But I do want to emphasize that spreads have been pretty well supported this year through this issuance, right? So we, we've seen minor bouts of widening here and there. But even right now, when issuance is very elevated, spreads are holding in pretty well. So I think the market, to some extent, is looking through to the lack of supply maybe in early next year, and that's keeping spreads in check. But to your point, I think it, that probably doesn't apply as much to seniors, but subordinate parts of the capital structure probably get a little bit more support going into next year just because of the, the supply technicals. So you mentioned that the structures have held up very well even during GFC, but given the volume of issuance, have you seen a deterioration in structure or in type of structure or however you want to phrase it in the most recent transactions? Yeah, I, I would break that into two answers. So within the CLOs themselves, we haven't seen too much change in structures. If anything, we've actually seen a little bit more enhancement at the AAA level. And I think it's being driven more so by investors than the rating agencies. And we have seen some incremental weakening of some of the rating agency tests within the structures. So that's some marginal weakening, but I don't think it's enough to impact our view on credit. I think what we've seen the biggest changes in the structures this year and really over the last couple of years has been sort of the incremental ability of the issuer, so the, the CEO of the transaction, the equity to buy workout loans, so restructured loans and reorged equity into the CLO, which they were previously were not allowed to do. We look to put limits on that as part of our negotiation on these deals, specifically with use to the use of principal to do that. But overall, I think it's actually neutral or actually maybe in some cases positive for credit because it just puts CLOs on equal footing with other investors and other loan investors in the space in terms of how they're dealt with in the restructuring process. And the other thing is we've seen bond buckets make their way back in this year. So Volcker was changed this year, which now allows for 5% bond capacity. So new transactions are including that. We're seeing a number of previous transactions amended to include bond buckets. So again, at the CLO level, not that much change incrementally, I'd say neutral. Where we've definitely seen some changes at the, the collateral level. So it's no secret that loan underwriting standards have been softer and have you know trended softer for the better part of the last decade, really. And specifically, we I would focus on covenants, EBITDA, backs, and adjustments, the number of loan-only structures that are out in the market, which all sort of indicate lower recoveries down the line. And that it may have improved slightly in the early stages of COVID, but if anything, it's done a full 180 from there where we're, I'd say we're marginally weaker now than we were in 2019 and then a lot of those stats. We've also seen that in terms of the amount of single B and lower single B investments that are or loans that are in these portfolios. And so part of that is a function of LBO issuance this year. So a lot of LBOs 
means a lot of lower single B credits, which are just a little bit more volatile in terms of their historical default performance. But it's also some legacy downgrades from COVID that made their way into the single B space. So it, it does give us a little bit more caution in terms of sort of longer term outlook on some of the mezzanine parts of the structure. So I think the near term setup for credit is positive, right? So we've got, you know, a growing economy and most loan issuers have taken advantage of, of this market to improve their interest coverage, push out their maturity walls. So there's, we don't really see near term catalysts for losses in these transactions, which sets up well for the whole structure. But I think longer term, there's some pretty obvious concerns around some parts of the collateral and how that will react in a negative credit environment. And I mean, it brings me to the next point, which is, you know, you mentioned how they held up well over periods of stress and the GFC and so forth. Can you talk about performance and periods of stress? And I think that what always comes up with insurance companies is liquidity, right? I think that's just something that is on the minds of these guys because, you know, hey, you may get a call and you need to raise capital. Who knows? So can you talk a little bit about how they performed under periods of stress and then I really want to talk about LIBOR to SOFR as well. Yeah, I think, I think you need to break down the performance in terms of market value, liquidity versus true performance. So again, as mentioned earlier, very limited losses in terms of true ultimate outcome. And even on the downgrade front, I think the structure held up pretty well during the most recent downturn for something like, I think, 25% of the, the universe ended up ultimately being downgraded from, from double B and really no downgrades at the senior part of the capital structure, but where you saw some pretty clear weakness, both in the GFC and in spring of last year, was in market pricing. So it is it is a little bit thinner in terms of liquidity than other markets. And so there was a pretty big drawdown in terms of pricing. So if you go back to the GFC for MES, that meant, you know, single dollar, you know, so pennies on the dollar sort of pricing for triple Bs and some single A's. We didn't get near that bad this time during COVID, but it still meant that we did see triple Bs trading into the 60s and 70s on a dollar price basis. So there's some pretty clear liquidity. Now that there was liquidity issues throughout the market at that point, so we were clearly not alone. But I do think the market is a little bit more volatile than other areas of the world just because of the sort of thinner buyer base for the asset class. You know, the guy that always learns the most on these things is me, John Mark. So this is I need a little bit of an education on the back end of this deal. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, LIBOR is, is effectively ending at the end of the year and we're going to get SOFR. And that's going to have some implications as on the CLO market. Can you take just a quick step back and talk about the LIBOR to SOFR transition and, and then give me the how it pertains to the CLOs? Sure. So the guidance has been out for a while for regulators that LIBOR is to be discontinued. And historically, it was supposed to be at the end of this year. So CLOs, loans, other asset classes that are referencing LIBOR have for multiple years now been dealing with what the right mechanism to replace it would be. We got a little, there's some pretty clear developments this year that that helped CLOs specifically. The first is that the deadline to end LIBOR moves until 2023. So existing transactions that are referencing LIBOR have some room to basically continue referencing LIBOR into the middle of 2023. So that adds a little bit of stability to existing transactions. If we think about how, so CLOs reference LIBOR and historically transactions really didn't have a fallback rate, but in the last three to four years, we've started incorporating language that would allow for replacement of LIBOR with a new index when LIBOR eventually goes away. We have clarity now that that's definitely going to be 2023 for three-month 
LIBOR, and we start to have clarity now in terms of what the the replacement index is going to be. And that was helped by the fact that the Fed has signed off and the ARC has signed off on three-month term SOFR, which it written into most CLOs now that, that you're basically going to reference whatever is the recommended rate. It also helps that the regulators have now determined what the credit spread adjustment is going to be in terms of the sort of basis between LIBOR and SOFR. So that's positive in terms of actually having a an ultimate outcome in mind when we get to 2023. So if you currently are a CLO that's referencing LIBOR and you do nothing between now and 2023, most likely you're, when LIBOR does go away, then you are not going to be paying SOFR plus 26 basis points, which is the ARC recommended basis, and plus whatever the existing spread is. So it's clear. What's unclear is really how things are going to price between now and then. So if we think about deals cannot issue off of LIBOR after this year. When we go into next year, we're going to be pricing off of SOFR. It's determining sort of that incremental margin over SOFR for new transactions uh, versus existing transactions, which becomes a bit of a, a sticking point. So we've gotten some clarity on the loan side of things where the three-month term is now being set around 15 basis points, but that really still needs to be ironed out in terms of where CLOs are going to price in the, in the near term. All right, Jean-Marc, that is fantastic. And I've gotten a masterclass on CLOs And now we enter into the part of the program called the Ask Me Anything portion. So you might not have been prepared for this portion, but I'm going to take you back to a day that you remember well. You're a graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I'm going to take you back to your graduation day. There you are looking bright eyed and bushy tailed, regardless of the festivities the evening before. You wait for your name to be called. You go across the stage, you shake the president's hand, get your diploma, smile for the camera. The crowd's going crazy and you walk down the stairs on the other side. At the bottom of those stairs, you run into Jean-Marc Bro today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? Uh, that's a good question. No, I think it's uh, take more risks. And I don't mean that in terms of you know necessarily taking more investment risks, although I'm sure a younger me could have benefited from that. But I think it's, you know, take risks in terms of challenges career-wise, take risks in terms of, you know, go talk to new investors, go on podcasts, right? Do things to push you out of your comfort zone. That's really the best way to learn and to grow as an investor. I think that's great advice. I've given my students that same advice. I'm like, listen, man, you're 21. You got nothing to lose. Take a shot at something, right? I mean, take on risk now. Now's the time to do it. So I think that's great advice. I really do. Jean-Marc Bro, Securitized Credit Analyst for the Fixed Income Division at T. Rowe Price. Jean-Marc, thanks for being on, man. Thanks so much. That's great. Thanks very much for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.